thank you very much, Allison. Um, we, I will keep my remarks exceptionally brief. Um, we're very pleased to sponsor McLean's Live. When Paul came up with this idea over a year ago, we knew it was a, going to be a hit. Um, and he has been very successful in putting together a roster of speakers uh, that are Canada's leaders and uh, policy influencers. And tonight is obviously no exception. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'd be happy to turn the mic over to Paul to uh, take us into the evening. I wasn't sure that was my cue. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Uh, welcome, everyone, here. Um, before we begin, uh, it is my pleasure to remind everyone that we are, all of us, uh, guests on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation, who are the past, present, and future stewards of this beautiful land. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister was up in uh, Nunavut, and... Um, he had important business. He was apologizing for the role that previous governments played uh, in uh, taking Inuit from their families, sending them to tuberculosis sanatoriums in the south, uh, and in many cases not notifying families that members of their families had passed away. Um, of course, every question that was put to the Prime Minister was about SNC-Lavalin. And if I had been a reporter there that day, I would have had questions for the Prime Minister about SNC-Lavalin. But Natan Obed was there, and he reminded all of us in, uh, in person at that event, and then in an article that he wrote for Maclean's later, that uh, sometimes there, are more, important questions, or there are, more, are more important issues than the pressing story. And that if there's always a story of the day, then sometimes the story of the age doesn't get properly told and that all of us, including journalists, have a role to play in reconciliation. I am happy that we had already arranged to have Mr. Obed be tonight's guest, and that we are uh, happy to start the conversation there as we begin a more uh, general discussion about relations between Inuit and the broader Canadian population. Please welcome the president of ITK, Natan Obed. So yeah, I felt, I felt very sheepish. I have been at announcements before with politicians, and, uh, and then the questions from the press gallery are never about what the announcement is about. Right. And the explanation that we always give is we only, get, we only get so many chances to put our questions to these guys, and this, this is today's chance. But what you reminded us was sometimes there are higher obligations. What, what, what was the substance of your argument in that, in that op-ed? Well, going back to the moment in that room, and it's the culmination of now three and a half years of being the national Inuit leader and being in many different rooms with uh, the National Press Corps and many different announcements in relation to the work that we're doing in reconciliation or uh, whether it's indigenous or Inuit-specific uh, milestones. And always the ministers of the day being uh, bombarded by questions other than what we're there to speak about, whether it be indigenous languages or whether it be child welfare or whether it be um, education. So in this particular instance, uh, we've just been through a really powerful apology that was well received by the room, by the prime minister of this country, where he not only apologized and talked about the conditions of uh, 
the political conditions and the attitudes of Canada during the time, but then also pivoted and talked a bit about today and about the future. So not only were we talking about an apology, we were also talking about a way forward to eliminate tuberculosis. It's important to note that uh, before this government in, on World TB Day in, in March of 2018 said that they would work with us to eliminate TB by 2030, the government of Canada through ministers or through the, the prime minister had never pledged on any social condition or on any health issue to uh, create a scenario in which Inuit have the rate of um, that particular issue uh, in relation to the same rate as the rest of Canadians. So these f fundamental groundbreaking uh, things are happening that are stories. And then also the passion uh, and the uh, hurt from families who had been trying to get the government to apologize, trying to find their lost loved ones for decades. And me, I have been entwined within this story as somebody who worked on behalf of some of these individuals uh, who I had to tell again and again that I didn't know where their lost loved one was. And that we're working with the government and, and we're trying to create a database or we're trying to create um, health programs or uh, over the course of a decade. And we finally are in this day and that the, the media rushed right past that conversation or that, that story. That to me was unacceptable. And I, I do feel as though in the course of reconciliation, we also have to think about why we look past the stories of Inuit being mobilized for decades away from their communities, put in sanatoriums in the south, dying in the south and, un and being placed in unmarked graves. Many Canadians were involved in this. This is not something that happened uh, in rural areas and in places where uh, there, there weren't anyone to report about what was happening. This was happening in the context of post-World War II where the country had an awakening about human rights. Uh, the horrors of what happened in places um, in uh, Poland and Germany were coming to light. Uh, and at this very time when Canada was such a major player and was so proud of itself in relation to how it conducted itself on behalf of human rights in World War II, that we would have similar things happening to Canadian Inuit in Canadian communities. And that's not to talk then about residential schools or other areas. But all of that kind of flooded into my headspace as I prepared to intervene. And, uh, I, I, but I also know that this isn't about attacking individuals in a room. This is about having a conversation with Canadians. It's having a conversation about different parts of Canadian society, such as the media, about the obligations that I think we all share together and want to work on in relation to reconciliation. And, and so I saw it as a, a teaching moment and also one that would set the course straight for the day, which was for those who had been, um, their human rights had, had uh, not been upheld by the Canadian government and the hurt that they went through and the pain that uh, has accompanied them throughout their entire lives. And that this day was the only day that they will ever get that the prime minister will apologize, that their story is on the front page of the news. And I, would, I was hoping that that story would be told more concretely than uh, something on the way to a more important story. Um, 
And tuberculosis is not simply a, a, a human rights disgrace of the middle part of the 20th century. It's a public health catastrophe that's continuing. Uh, it's a disease that, that had not, did not have a long history in, in, in the Arctic. And it was introduced there from the south. And if I'm not mistaken, the TB prevalence rate today uh, in the territory that ITK covers is, is, is 290, 300 times right. the TB prevalence rate here. Um, do you think that that is something that can be repaired in the foreseeable future is that, as a practical matter? Yes. <clears throat> well, last year, Inuit leadership and the Government of Canada pledged to eliminate tuberculosis by 2030 and half the act, have the active rate by 2025. In Budget 2018, there was $27.5 million over five years that was allocated to TB elimination. Over the course of the last year, we've created a national TB elimination framework. And now uh, we're, each of our four Inuit regions are in uh, different stages of completing and implementing TB action plans. We know that mobilization and identification of what needs to be done is only part of, of the challenge. And we know also that TB is driven by a number of different factors, most notably housing, uh, poverty, and food security, and, and also in conjunction with uh, healthcare access, whether that be primary care or public health care. We need massive investments in Inuit Nunangat to ensure that we can meet those, um, those targets of 2025 and 2030. But just like with boil water advisories for First Nations communities, I'm happy to see this government make an ambition and, and then move um, systematically towards achieving that ambition. In, within TB elimination, we have a shared ambition. We don't have necessarily a, uh, a map that is fully funded between now and 2030, but I remain optimistic that we can work across Inuit Nunangat, our homeland, and with public governments, the provinces, the territories, and the federal government to take all the steps necessary to eliminate TB by 2030. Okay, so that is something that the, 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 there's a there's a kind of a roadmap has been laid out, but the funding for the moment is preliminary, and yes. that you're just hoping that that continues. There there have been investments over the past three years uh, in housing and and then of course specifically in TB elimination, but we're going to have to have uh, an awakening or a sea change in an understanding of. Of, um, of what it's going to take to really build the rest of this country. And from an inf infrastructure standpoint, we're starting at a deficit, as in we were living on the land in many cases until the 1940s and 50s. And the communities that we were coerced to settle in, in many cases, were never um, uh, created with the idea that there would be uh, enough housing, uh, enough infrastructure to be able to maintain a current population, let alone population growth. So we have 52% overcrowding now in comparison to about 9% for all of the Canadians. Uh, we do have a, num uh, a number of different announcements around um, uh, money that will go towards housing, but it will have to be a magnitude more in order to reduce the rate of overcrowding. We'll also have to uh, have see more investments or more targeted investments in relation to food security and poverty reduction as well. Okay. Let's pull back the camera a little bit and, and, and um, define a couple of terms. You've uh, twice made reference to Inuit Nunangat. Yeah. Um, what is that? 
Well, Inuit Nunangat is a term that Inuit uh, have created uh, very specifically, which is uh, our homeland, and our homeland as de defined by the four settlement regions of our uh, land claim agreements, or our modern treaties. So the Inuvialuit settlement region in, uh, in the Northwest Territories, the entirety of Nunavut, uh, the Nunavik region of Quebec, which is uh, through the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement, and the Nunatsiavut region of Newfoundland and Labrador. So the sum total of those four settlement regions comprise Inuit Nunangat, and it's about um, a third of Canada's landmass, and it encompasses about half of its coastline. It's a homogeneous political space, and, um, and also from an ethnic space, from an Inuit space, uh, we also have a majority population within this particular space. So we have been really pushing this government to rethink the way it creates policy for Indigenous peoples by um, populating this Inuit Nunangat space with its uh, interventions. Okay. The long-term goal is for this Inuit Nunangat, which again, stretches essentially from the northern part of Northwest Territories through all of Nunavut to Northern Quebec and, and Northern Labrador. Um, the goal is for that to become a, continu a contiguous political space with similar jurisdiction to the provinces in the south. Is that right? Well, we'll see where self-determination takes us. Uh, Nunatsiva government is uh, our only self-governing region within the four regions, although the Inuvialuit are well on their way to self-government. Um, uh, Nunavik and Nunavut are also uh, uh, in their particular land claim organizations considering and having steps towards self-government or more, more focused self-determination efforts. So in the next 30 to 40 years, who knows what um, will happen within that space. But for today, this country is divided up into regions already. And uh, the there's no legislation that binds the government to populate its interventions in any one particular way. And so for the indigenous space, it used to be, uh, um, even if nobody really understood it, an equivalent to First Nations on reserve. And we didn't see ourselves and weren't eligible for many of the expenditures that were tagged in budgets. Or, so we've been successful in creating an Inuit section within federal budgets. We also have worked with the Department of Fisheries Oceans to create an Arctic region which is inclusive of Inuit Nunangat. So instead of us being broken up into a northern region perhaps which has a latitudinal or a territorial lens in its policy space, and then a Quebec region and an Atlantic region. We were saying that the Inuit Nunangat space within those fractured um, existing regions would be better served by a unified Inuit Nunangat policy approach. You mentioned that you uh, have been the president of ITK for three and a half years, which means that you were elected shortly before Justin Trudeau was elected. Um, um, now, that takes me in two different questions. Do I ask you about Trudeau, or do I ask you about how you got there? Let's start with the, with the, with the how you got there. Um, I mean, you spent a, a large part of your teenage years living in Maine. Correct. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, <clears throat> my mother is American and from Maine in the U.S. I have to say that very specifically because then my father is from Nain in Nunatsi. Oh. So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that I have to pronunciate. Uh, 
but my father was uh, is Inuk, and he is where where I get my Inuit identity from, and uh, I. I grew up all over the place, actually. I was born in Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, on the way back to Labrador because my uh, father was in a trade school there and, and also had been studying to become a minister. And I was, uh, they, my parents were living in a hotel outside of Fredericton. So that's what it says on my birth certificate. But we were in uh, Nain and in Natsevud, and that's really where I say that I'm from because that's where I feel that my identity lives and breathes. Uh, I, I also lived in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Northwest River in, in Labrador. Uh, and then when I was 12, my uh, mother took my brother, sister and I, and, we, and, we, and she separated from my father and, and they, uh, we moved to Maine. And so I went to high school in Maine. I played junior hockey in, Monta in Montana and uh, uh, New Brunswick, or not New Brunswick, New, uh, New Hampshire, and then I went to university in Boston at Tufts. All the way through that, though, I, I was Inuk, <laughs> and I might have been outside of my community and not having the connections that I would have hoped to have during those teenage years and early adult years, but uh, I knew that I always needed to come back, and so luckily I've been able to. Um, in some of the journalism that was done about you at the time that you became the president of ITK, uh, some of the characteristics of life in the North were mentioned. One of them is the, the open door policy, and the other is um, uh, eating country food. Um, country food is nearly self-explanatory. It's, it's, it's uh, um, caribou and, uh, and uh, berries and, 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 and the food that you would go out and hunt for rather than having airlifted up. What is the open door policy? I, I was reminded of it because I've spent some time up there and uh, right. it means anyone can walk in. Yeah, it's, it's almost the exact opposite of say here in Ottawa where it would be kind of rude to just walk into somebody's house uh, that you I know, know. I always get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but you weren't invited and you, don't, it's, you didn't have a specific date that you were supposed to be there or time of day. But in Nunagat in many of our communities if you knock then you'll be scolded. You, it's just not socially acceptable. You, if you're part of a community, you're known to the community, and uh, you come in and out of people's lives in a much more informal way, and almost like a wraparound way, a much more complete way, where your extended family uh, is not, it, it, it could be just as close to you as your brother and sister or your father and mother. So it is a, a, a marked difference between how, um, social interaction happens in the South versus how social interaction happens in Inuit okay. Um And then the other thing that was uh, uh, an issue in the election and something that you've uh, had to explain to folks like me frequently since then is that you are, you're not conversationally fluent in Inuktitut. Correct. Um, as a product of having spent so many years in the South. Uh, and, and that was a challenge in getting elected. You had to explain not only to uh, guys like me, but to other Inuit, why you should be the president of ITK despite that. What did you say? Well, first, I want to recognize the practicality of speaking Inuktut, which is the term can confuse people. Inuktut is another term, just like Inuit Nunangat, that Inuit have created to describe the entirety of our, our dialects. We have uh, approximately 12 to 
14 dialects, depending upon what linguist and what person is counting. Uh, but the, it's the same language. So uh, in Nunatsiavut, it's Inuktitut. In Nunavut and uh, Nunavik, in, many, uh, in the Eastern Arctic, it's Inuktitut. And then other places, it's different terminology. But for me, uh, I didn't learn Inuktitut as a, as a child. And I've tried as an adult to learn as a second language. I haven't been very successful. Uh, but practically speaking, 58% uh, of Inuits still can speak Inuktitut. And 40% of all Inuit and Inuit Nunagat use it as the primary language in their homes. So it is a very resilient indigenous language. And people want to hear their leaders speak in their language. Unfortunately, in parts of Inuit Nunagat, such as Nunatsiavut and the Nuviaruit region in the western part of Nunavut, there are certain populations of Inuit that uh, don't speak uh, as much. So it could be anywhere from 5% or 20% of the population that can still speak. And even now, amongst younger people, there are less people that speak uh, Inuktut. So I have always said that I'm a champion of um, Inuktut. And my ability to work at a national level and to influence policy and legislation and to create uh, the interventions and the, uh, the steps necessary to revitalize and strengthen and uh, cherish our language are very different than my ability to speak. Uh, I'll, I'll, I can speak through translation. I can, um, uh, I can create the scenarios where elders can speak to me. I think that's the, a, a big thing within our politics, though, is that I don't have to be the most Inuk. I, I can have skill sets that uh, allow me to do my job really well, but those are not the same skill sets that I might need if I'm on the land or if I'm in a position where I need to speak um, to a unilingual Inuk. I recognize uh, the complexity of all this but at this point in time, the reality is there are many people like me, many people who want to help, many people who have been um, torn away from their culture and their language and, and were not taught and have hardly any way to, to regain uh, their language, but still want to make a positive contribution and still fe feel and are Inuit. So uh, it became... Uh, a very big topic within our community, and one that I was ready to have. I, I knew that this was going to be a conversation all the way through, and when I decided to run for ITK president, I knew what I was getting into. Uh, and I was very happy to see that so, so many people supported me. Also, that people's minds have been changed, that people now don't use that as much as they did in the past. Your own children are, uh, have, have learned, your two children have learned uh, Inuktitut from a very early age. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, and as you mentioned, in, when you talked about it, you, you would draw a distinction between the symbolism of having a leader of ITK who's, uh, who's fluent in the language versus the practicality of coming here and making the case with people who in any, in any case don't speak uh, often anything but English and French. Um, uh, 
while I was doing a little bit of research, I, 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 there were some statistics about the life of Inuit in the north um, and, and, and some of the public health challenges that, that give a, uh, an indication of the challenge that, 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 um, that we're really all facing as a country. The growth rate between 2006 and 2016 was 29% in Inuit versus 11% uh, in the rest of the country. So nearly tripled the growth rate uh, in, in one decade. The fraction of the population up north that live in crowded homes is 52% versus 9% here in the south. Uh, the number of families who are food insecure is 70% in the north versus 8% here. Um, household median income before tax, 24,000 uh, in the north and 92,000 among non-Inuit residents of the north. Uh, so about nearly quadruple. Uh, and as we said, the tuberculosis rate for the moment is 300 times higher. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you go, how do you go about addressing challenges like that? That's a good question. <laughs> I think it, it's an incremental approach that allows for Inuit self-determination to flourish within any interventions that, um, that, that we uh, work with governments on and, and then start to implement. There, this didn't happen overnight. Uh, and, uh, in this time of reconciliation, there have been a number of very loud proclamations about renewal relationship and uh, never again, if, whether it's residential school or other, other things. But the reality is that uh, there is a, a massive infrastructure deficit and also an inability to overcome social inequity that will remain unless there, there is a more targeted intervention. We've talked uh, a lot about the, the role that, um, that keeping children safe and healthy will play in any of the interventions that are to come. And targeting upstream investments on Inuit society, investing in education, in um, in ensuring that Inuit grow up understanding and knowing their language and their culture and are tied to our community. All of those things lead us away from those rates. We have to build um, loving, caring, uh, full human beings, Inuit. And the way in which that can happen has to be in hand in hand with our political development and decisions that are made about how funding flows, so the Inuit self-determination piece, but then also the recognition that, uh, that there might be spending that is much greater than historical levels that will allow for Inuit society to um, overcome the adversities of the, of the colonial era of residential school, of relocations, of, of um, historical treatment. So it's, it's sometimes overwhelming to go every single day to another major societal foundational issue from suicide prevention to TB to climate change to um, you know, just the very basic political uh, 
uh, fights that are now and are to come about um, uh, Inuit and our placing in this country. So we try to create um, practical solutions that move us forward in the path to self-determination that also, wherever possible, are realistic in what public governments can, can do at any given time. Um, it, it would be easy for me to just be a hard line. We need everything right now. Uh, it's much harder to be a politician that tries to work um, hand in hand with governments and try to figure out what the next step is in the right direction. Uh, but I believe that that is the best approach to take and one that I've uh, been taking for the last three and a half years. It's now several years since my last trip to the north. I, I was in Tuktoyaktuk and a couple of other communities 15 years ago now. It, it seemed to me at the time that um, uh, housing was often one of the cruelest bottlenecks. I mean, not only for uh, crowded homes and the public health challenges that flow from that, but uh, education and healthcare, the, the teachers and doctors and nurses uh, themselves had a, were at that time having a hard time finding affordable housing. Has that changed and is that still a, a, a sort of a, um, a, a fundamental problem on which other problems stack? Yeah. <clears throat> housing is a really interesting uh, place to dive into. If you think about the housing stock across Inuit Nunangat, we're talking about um, you know, small communities, many of our 51 communities are a thousand or less. We have a few regional centers. We have very little private home ownership. We have a lot of social housing. And we, then we also have a lot of uh, um, government and uh, um, sort of uh, positions-based subsidies. So if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, if you're a federal employee or a territorial or provincial employee, you will most likely have subsidized housing that you don't have to find that um, comes with a job. In very few cases, in places like Akaluit or maybe Rankin Inlet or Kujuak, there are a minority of people who own their own homes, but the majority of people who still live in subsidized social housing units. So it's not like we can uh, build upon an existing housing stock and the complexity of a private home ownership model that builds wealth, that um, takes care of itself in some uh, ways, that goes alongside of the social housing and the subsidized housing for public servants. So they essentially choke each other, really. Uh, if you're earning a lot of money, but you can uh, you have a subsidized unit, what incentive do you have to go find a private home? If there aren't any homes to buy, that's another reason why you're not going out to look for one. If you're in social housing and you don't have the incentives to move beyond that, uh, and there isn't the complexity within the interventions, and there isn't the money to create uh, the, the housing stock to begin with, then you're locked into social housing for the better part of your life. So we need a new way a rethink about how housing happens in Inuit Nunangat. We've created a national strategy for housing. We've had investments from this government in social housing, but it is my hope that over the next generation, we can build the maturity into housing that would allow for the overcrowding rates to decrease, private homeownership to increase, 
uh, and then also the uh, the negative parts of either the social housing or the subsidies uh, that are provided to to um, to staff housing, that those be reimagined into uh, a sol a solutions solutions that get to the heart of the problem, which is basically no government will ever have enough money to fix the housing crisis in its current state. We need to reimagine what housing is and the components of it, and then create interventions that build the type of housing that is sustainable for anyone living out. Can that only be done in direct partnership with the federal government? Can some of it be done autonomously? Yes, so it will probably be a combination of Inuit-specific measures, provincial territorial measures, and federal measures. Uh, right now, Inuit do play an active role in uh, building homes, in managing housing stock, uh, so, and in creating incentives for, for housing. So we, uh, Inuit are active players by region. Uh, this isn't ITK, this is the four Inuit regions or their, um, their specific subsidi subsidiaries. And then provinces and territories have a role to play too. These realities exist within jurisdictions in which Inuit are um, residents of a province, residents of a territory. It isn't like the Indian Act where the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction. So that so the the the, the provincial territorial level is is much more of a partner than it would be with First Nations. First Nations on reserve, yes. Um, let's talk about that federal we're here. That's Parliament. Um, uh, you got elected in the middle of 2015. So you had a few months of working with the Harper government and, and, and a few years of working with the Trudeau government. Um, did you notice a difference? <laughs> well, I've, I've worked for Inuit representational organizations since 2002. Mm -hmm. And I was... Um, senior manager at ITK during the, the lead up to Kelowna and was in Kelowna and, and saw, uh, witnessed all of that and was a part of that as, uh, as a staff member at ITK. And then worked for Nunavut Tungavik during the Harper years. Uh, and uh, yes, there are massive discrepancies between the way in which different governments uh, work with indigenous peoples and the way in which funding flows and the way that relationships are created and maintained. I've been very fortunate to be at a point in time when uh, the government of the day has an expressed interest in reconciliation as one of its key platform um, items. Uh, to my knowledge, that has never happened. A government has never been elected before uh, on that particular platform. And then throughout the last three and a half years, that has been a consistent talking point of this government, and the renewal of the relationship, and uh, no relationship matters more uh, to this government in the terms of the government. You know, some, uh, there are some people in my staff will harp that it's, oh, the, the term is relationship. So it doesn't say necessarily that uh, we have rights or that we're gonna implement them, it's that we wanna have a relationship with you. And I think that's a pretty cynical take, although I'm happy that my staff are always grounding me in, in reality. Uh, but I, th I think that in the last three and a half years, we've had some remarkable success. 
And I would like to think, as a nonpartisan leader, that, uh, that it's the mobilization of Inuit, not necessarily the benevolence of any government of the day, that has led to a number of our really uh, big wins. But at the same time, I think there is a basic level of respect and also an openness to consider new ways of doing business uh, that, that have unlocked the potential of Inuit self-determination over the last three years. Um, uh, at one point, about two years ago, one of my colleagues was talking to um, Jane Philpott, who was Minister of Indigenous Services at the time. And uh, perhaps you've heard of her, she's in the news. Uh, and he um, said, who are the Indigenous leaders that, uh, that um, are, are really uh, uh, able spokespeople and uh, have interesting positions? And she said, well, you've got to talk to Natan Obed. And he said, well, okay, I assume he's a supporter of most of what the government does. And she said, no, no, he's quite critical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not always. <laughs> um, there is a current of thought to the effect that... Um, the new relationship, the nation-to-nation -nation relationship, is only, uh, uh, it is only a talking point. I, this is what I hear sometimes from Indigenous critics of the government. Are, are there times when you've had occasion to doubt their good faith or to doubt their ability to deliver on their rhetoric? And feel free to say no, I, whatever, but I thought I'd put the question to you. Right. I'm thinking about what is possible and in four years. And also the limitations of any government in relation to the complexity of the federal government it, and the, the nature of the, um, the way in which federal departments have their own agency and have their own culture. We've had amazing success with Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, the new uh, Department of Indigenous Services has escaped some of the culture that had held back INAC for, uh, for forever in relation to uh, thinking in innovative and progressive ways about um, the renewal of the relationship. But then on, in other places within the federal government, it's as if this is, had never happened. Mm. So uh, I, I keep thinking about some of the great successes we've had, and then some of the other places where doors are closed, even though I would have a very similar interaction with a minister responsible. So there has been, there has been a lot of interest in trying to work with Inuit. Uh, I've immediately, after having the first meeting with a minister, if, if their portfolio overlapped with ours in a significant way, I would then say, let's have a bilateral work plan. Let's just put down on paper what you and I can do together uh, that are in the best interests of the Crown and the best interests of Inuit within your portfolio. It's interesting that only Minister McKenna has taken me up on that. Hmm. So after four years, this government is still not necessarily understanding how to transform the working relationship. And I've focused way more on the working relationship than on the political relationship because that can come and go. But the public service and how the public service acts and the advice that it gives to any particular minister of the day, that has been entrenched for so long that we end up fighting that more than we fight the good intention of, of ministers. Um, essentially inertia. 
the, it sounds like your biggest challenge is inertia mm -hmm. and the way things have always been done. Um, uh, what were the terms of the, of the working agreement you struck with, with Catherine McKenna, with the Environment Minister? What sort of stuff did you agree to work on together? Well, this was after um, the Pan-Canadian framework and also the work that we did together within the Conference of the Parties and the Paris Agreement. So there's some international work in working together with, um, with Global Affairs and Environment Canada on the positions that Canada will take in these international fora and to, to implement the Paris Agreement, what role can ITK play and its, um, our sister organization, ICC Canada, play in informing Canada's positions. Then also in things like protected areas and indigenous protected areas, um, guardians programs, um, the implementation of the Pan-Canadian framework, uh, the, the legislative review agenda. And in many cases, the work plan isn't necessarily that ITK does the Inuit side of the work and Environment Canada does the other side. It is that we know these are strategically the most important things that are going to happen within a time period. And that I pledge to work with my Inuit leadership to ensure that it paves the way, it opens doors for the work to happen where it needs to happen. Uh, in many cases, I am a shepherd of the work into the rightful places where the work happens. The same with Environment Canada. A lot of the climate change funding is not doled out through Environment Canada, it's through uh, Indigenous Services or it's through ISEDs or other places within the government. So in many cases uh, with these really tough files, having a shared um, work plan allows for us every time we meet to not say hello for the first time every single time because that is a, a condition that is universal in politics is that uh, you know especially politics within the federal sphere where you can have 10 meetings over the course of four years you might not get anything done uh, and I'm trying to disrupt that and break that up because it's much easier for minister to say yes I'm so sympathetic to Inuit absolutely and then talk to you about the weather for 45 minutes and say how great it was that they saw somebody drum dance and then have the same conversation in nine months. It's much more difficult if you come in as, as somebody who has a rightful role to work with government and say this is what we want to do and we want to create a, a, um, a condition of where we can have shared success. It's, it's caused people to think, uh, ministers to um, either uh, not want to see me again, or, or dig, dig into the work and try to figure out how to have shared wins. Um, I, I should also ask about your relationships over the last year or so with the leaders of the NDP, Conservative Party, Green Party. Do you ever see these folks? Do they? How, how does that relationship go? I, I, I see Elizabeth May more than um, I see the other two leaders, and. Uh, uh, She's always been very effusive and very supportive of ITK, and, and I really appreciate that. So, uh, and there have been some times uh, where we've had the chance to really chat and talk, and, uh, and I do think that even, um, with the Green Party, the, the, that's not necessarily their first interest in relation to Indigenous peoples, especially since our, of our uh, wildlife sta stances on, on certain things, on hunting.
but there's a shared mutual respect. Uh, with the leaders of the NDP and, and the Conservative Party, uh, there hasn't been as much as a connection, and I do hope that uh, there can be more of an ongoing conversation between Inuit and uh, all parties. But really, there's been so much work with this government uh, that the focus of my office has been on trying to make good on the the uh, the work that that we can do. Um, it seems to be the question is germane though. We're in an election year, and we're eight months away from uh, one of these four parties, or maybe five, with the People's Party of Canada um, taking over the government and. Um, and being the steward of the whole country, including the third of the country, that is your particular preoccupation. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised sometimes that you don't hear as much from other parties? Well, I th the nature of federal politics, uh, it's confounding to me. I don't understand 90% of it. I especially don't understand question period. Well, come work for us then. We'll fit right in. <laughs> but uh, with, uh, it was really surprising to me that the Liberal Party didn't necessarily reach out to Inuit in setting up their platform when they were all in on Indigenous people and on reconciliation. <coughs> and it wasn't until, and we didn't influence the mandate letters per se, and then it wasn't until we saw the mandate letters and the real focus on reconciliation and the willingness for ministers to come and engage with us that we started to tell them who we were. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that it's, it'll be any different for any party in any government. It's interesting how the amnesia is so strong between, say, June and November, where the work that people end up doing is very different than the work that is promised, or even the work that is, is championed in many cases. So uh, no matter what government is formed in, in November, uh, I'm not losing sleep about the fact that I'm not lobbying right now uh, on our interests because there'll be random new people who've never heard of Inuit that I'll be talking to who are ministers of very important portfolios. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I should point out, as you know, one, the, 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 the last time I was in Nunavut uh, 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 in the Northwest Territories, the High Arctic was... Um, or the, was uh, with a tour that ITK organized under one of your predecessors, mm -hmm. uh, precisely to take public servants who work here in Ottawa and whose policies affect populations in the north and literally airlift them up to, yeah. to, 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 to the north so they could see the, 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 the communities they were working with. And I take it that this, is, this has been part of ITK's work before then and ever since, that simply showing uh, Ottawa folk you know, uh, where their policies uh, hit the ground in a way that they might not otherwise ever get a chance to see. Right. Um, what, what, what are the effect of those tours? Like, wh why, why do you do them and, and, and how do they work out? Uh, we've been doing them now for over 15 years and uh, we were doing them once a year, now we do them twice a year and, and we visit our regions in succession. So it's a cycle that every year, um, uh, about 30, 35 public servants, senior public servants, get a chance to understand Inuit Nunangat. It, it now has created um, a cohort of people who've taken the tour that have ascended to deputy minister positions, to ADM positions, to director generals. 
And so I, I get um, a lot of, of people just like you today that have said, hey, I've been to Tuck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and I've ridden in a Kamutik in Hopedale. Like, these, are, these are good moments and things to, to build uh, a working relationship on. The practical uh, reality, though, is that people are exposed to a part of Canada that they didn't ever know existed. And having um, the obligation to consider all Canadians within the development of policy or the development of regulatory acts, or to, to know that the, nobody tells a senior public servant per se that there are land claim agreements and they're separate that, from treaties and that uh, they were signed on these dates and this, these are the arrangements that have made, been made based on these agreements. When you get out into uh, Inuit Nunangat, you see the effect of Ottawa, you see the reality of Inuit, you understand uh, the, more about the complexity of Canada, of, of any decision that you're about to make that has anything to do with, um, with Indigenous peoples or with the Inuit, or with uh, Inuit Nunangat, the Arctic. So it's been uh, very successful for us to be able to build uh, a, a number of uh, socially literate people about their own geography and their own country. I uh, wish we could have uh, a larger cohort of people to do that. Uh, but we also have been really good in, uh, at social media and getting our story out there in ways that more Canadians can understand. What would you say um, for someone who's never been there? I, I suspect a large part of our, our audience, although some of our audience is actually from there and is coming, is visiting Ottawa. But um, uh, what are these communities like to visit for an outsider? And what is, what is that land like to see for an outsider? Well, our communities are, are very diverse and they're heavily influenced by colonization. Um, what, what church denomination, what, uh, you know, what random whaling captain was there in the 1800s. Uh, like, there are all sorts of weird permutations of, of what sort of culture we have today that is Inuit culture. Like, um, square dancing is a very traditional thing, or being Moravian in Nunatsiavu is very traditional. A German sect of Christianity that uh, is, has pockets across North America too now, but uh, uh, not very mainstream. So like, we have the, the effect of colonization, but you have the resilience of Inuit. You have Inuit society that is very clearly alive and very clearly different than the dominant Canadian society. We have our language, we have our culture, we have our traditions, we have our food, we have the way that we raise our children. We uh, have a love for not only the land, but all things that live within it. And uh, I think by going to Inuit Nunangat, you are, you are enveloped in all that. You understand it to a way that, that you can't get it from me just saying it and saying it's so. Also, for most people, they're amazed at how welcoming and warm Inuit are to, to them in small communities. And also that there isn't as much bitterness on the surface towards the, uh, the colonial relationship and uh, those powers that sometimes still do come in and uh, exert undue influence. It's not to say it's not there. There's a lot of historical trauma. There's a lot of bitterness. But the way in which we greet people and try to see people for who they are and welcome them is also a hallmark of, um, of any Inuit community that you'd ever go to. Um, 
we're getting near the top of the hour again, and I, I did want to ask about the fallout from um, political events here. Uh, uh, since the beginning of the year, um, the uh, currently only Indigenous mem member of Cabinet has left the Cabinet. The um, Minister of Indigenous Services, former Minister of Indigenous Services, Jane Philpott, has left government. Uh, and um, personalities aside, this government is currently tied up in knots over this controversy. Is that uh, something of direct concern to you as you try and push your agenda? It is. I think it's a direct concern to anyone trying to do any business um, with the federal government at this point in time. Uh, let alone what the implications are post-June when everyone rises and you go into election mode. Uh, we've got a number of things that, uh, that we want to get accomplished just with uh, legislative reform, with creation of different policies, and with unfinished work on strategies and action plans and, and the Inuit Crown um, Partnership Committee. You know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I think it's really interesting, because what, what this issue is all about, in, if you go uh, like 100 feet out, the rule of law and the, um, the attack on the rule of law by individuals, but really of individuals working for a government. And I, I bring that back to what I am expected to put up with as a national Inuit leader in my day-to-day. -day. And the, the, um, the government of Canada and its unwillingness in many cases to uphold um, UN declarations or UN human rights law, the Constitution, um, Supreme Court rulings, all in relation to Inuit. And it is not in the same category. It is not uh, uh, talking about offenses in a criminal code, but it is still government not complying to um, what Canadians would expect government to comply to. And I think of um, uh, the First Nations Caring Society and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and the fact that, the, that there have been, I believe, six or seven non-compliance orders that have been issued. But somehow, nobody in Cabinet walked away from cabinet over that. And that uh, somehow an incremental approach was always the approach that was good for cabinet and good for Canada. Uh, this is, I think, that where I'm truly trying, trying hard to understand why everything falls apart over this particular issue, but not about the myriad of different cases where the government of Canada has not lived up to its expectations or its duty uh, in relation to the implementation of land claims or compliance to things such as the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So again, it's turning the conversation into saying something about what, this, what members of cabinet, what members of the press, what uh, Canadians think is important and what they're okay with. So uh, the CRTC ruling and the non-compliance, that's okay. Uh, but you talk to somebody about uh, SNC-Lavalin, somehow everything's over. And I think that gets to what I was saying in the beginning about our stories not being told. It's also our rights not being upheld. 
that the rule of law not applying to Inuit the same way it applies in other scenarios, in other workings in the government. So rather than depending on good faith of people like me, and uh, it sounds like what we need is a work plan of some kind. What would that work plan look like? Well, I, with, are you talking about media? Sure. sure. <laughs> All right. Well, the work plan would start with uh, uh, knowledge, with uh, still there is a lack of understanding about the complexity of um, indigenous peoples, our governance, our democracies, and uh, the, uh, the way we fit into confederation. And without having that grounding, then every article has uh, egregious errors in trying to report on indigenous peoples when you're talking about things nationally. I, so the more complex, accepting that it is more complex th than that. And also accepting that it is not indigenous people that created the complexity. It is the government of Canada. It is the, the, the rulings of Supreme Courts. It is the constitution. It is the fabric of the colonial legacy. So expecting Inuit to know all of this and to everyone else ignore it is still a continuation of that colonial mindset about how we are sub subjected to Canada's rule, when that actually isn't the case anymore. Everyone in Canada would accept that Indigenous peoples have rights, and we have the right to self-determination. Figuring out how to implement those rights, that's the conversation we need to have. Well, at a minimum, in the hour that we've had here tonight, we've at least set the table for that conversation, and I hope we'll get many more chances to continue it. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming here tonight. I want to thank our partners at CPAC and at the National Arts Centre, uh, and, of course, as always, our sponsors at the Canadian Bankers Association. There's a reception next door. I hope you'll uh, continue the conversation there, and thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thank you.